Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 10. On one of my rare morning visits to McDonald's, <laughs> I was sitting so I could see the windows there in the parking lot, and a fellow walked by, and, and I thought, boy, he looks familiar, and, and he looked at me with kind of that same look, kind of like, he looks familiar, but, you know, you hate to stick your neck out too far, and as he walked in, he kind of looked into the room where I was sitting, and I kind of looked at him, and I thought, oh, I know, and so I got up and went out and, and said, hey, how you doing, and he remembered me, and uh, fortunately, we were on equal ground because neither one of us re- remembered each other's names. <laughs> he's one of the deputy sheriffs. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, he's the one that gave me my polygraph test, and uh, I said, hey, how you doing? I'm sorry I forgot your name. And he told me, and then he says, I forgot your name too. And boy, I felt good. But uh, <laughs> it's a, what's it? It's probably a good thing. Yeah, it probably is. Yeah. So he came in and we had a good visit together. Oh, aren't you glad God doesn't forget your name? That's what we're going to learn about from John chapter 10 here today. We're going to learn this wonderful truth that once we're part of God's family, or as he puts it here, his flock, once we're part of his flock, we're always going to be part of his flock. Follow as I read, please, from John 10, starting in verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Last week we looked at the first half of this passage, which talks about how we can certainly know that we are the child of God, and and how Christ essentially said, look, here is the difference between my sheep and others who are not my sheep. And he said, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. The sheep of Christ, the followers of Christ, the children of God, those who are born again, whatever term you want to use, have come to true faith in Christ. They have heard Christ call through the Bible, through God's people as they share God's word, and they've come to faith in Christ and they believe in him. You can see here that the key difference between those who are here now attacking him, not physically, they wanted to attack him physically, but they're attacking him spiritually. The key difference between them and his sheep is the, those folks did not believe and the sheep do believe. This week we're going to go on to understand about the, the certainty of our salvation once we have become the sheep of Christ, once we have become the child of God. And this is a doctrine that we refer to as the doctrine of eternal security. And and I've chosen to use that term purposefully for those of you especially who might not have heard the term and might, might not be as conversant in it as some of us are. Eternal security. 
Call that life insurance of the highest order, perhaps. The fact that once you come to faith in Christ, you will spend eternity with God in heaven. And the premise of our eternal security is the condition of our salvation. And here, here, um, here's my sermon in, in a sentence. You cannot lose your salvation because you did not win it. You cannot lose your salvation because you did not win it. What does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that salvation is the result of God's choice. Look what Jesus says here as he's talking to these these unbelievers who were religious leaders but not believers in him. In verse 25, he said, I told you that I was who I was and you don't believe. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And the wonderful truth that we understood more clearly last week is that God knew us even before we believed. God has a hand in our salvation from before the time we even hear about him. And perhaps even the fact that we are able to hear about him is part of that hand. If you're sitting here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, maybe you've never even heard the message of Christ, it's not an accident that you're here. God is working in you to bring you to faith in Christ. Our salvation is the result of God's choice. Listen to John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Choose is a verb, and it's the word that when it's used in a noun form or an adjective form in the Bible, in the New Testament, In many translations, it's translated elect. The idea of election, the idea of choosing, that God chooses us. He reaches down and does something in us so we will come to faith in Christ. He starts the process. He makes sure that it happens. God's choice of of Abraham and from him the people of Israel illustrates God's choice of us as Christians today. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were something special. The Lord did not set his love on you, Christian, because he looked down through the ages of time and said, I see that Dave Lunsford's going to believe. I'm going to take him. No, quite the opposite. He looked down through time and said, Dave Lunsford is such a rascal that if I don't do something, he will never come to faith in Christ. And that is true of all sinners. 
God set his love on me. He set his love on you if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, he wants to set his love on you. And that may be why you're here today. Listen to this quote. Without any compulsion from outside or any necessity, but purely out of the impulse of love, God seeks to save those whom there is no reason to save. That's you and I. There's no reason. God doesn't have to save us, but he does. This is what we refer to as grace, the free gift of God. I love that song, and and, and I'm, I'm so glad you put the words on the screen there, Marianne. Were it not for grace, I can tell you where I'd be, wandering down some pointless road to nowhere. And that's true of every Christian. If you haven't come to grasp that yet, Christian, I hope you do today to the glory of God and to his worship. God said, I am going to reach down and graciously touch some of these people so they will be able to believe. Salvation is the result of God's choice. Secondly, salvation is the result of Christ's work. Look at verse 28. Of John 10, Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. I give them eternal life. He doesn't say they're going to win it or earn it or merit it. He says, I'm going to give it to them. And it's based all on the work of Christ. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You did not, nor can you, contribute anything to your own salvation. This flies in the face of of the most popular belief about salvation, which is namely that we have to do many good things and somehow God will look down from heaven and say, well, you're a pretty good Joe. You know, 51% of your life was good and so I'm going to let you into heaven. A couple of years ago, we, we studied a number of other religions, you remember, and we studied the Muslim religion. And I didn't know this about them, but they have this concept of the scales. And whether or not they go to, to their version of heaven has to do with whether they've done more good than bad. I thought, isn't that fascinating? This huge, huge world religion has the same belief system as the majority of people in the world, which is I've got to do more good than bad so I can get there. So God will look down on me and say, you are a wonderful person. But the sad truth is, when God looks at our attempt to please him before we come to Christ in salvation, this is what he sees. We're all like an unclean thing, and all our acts of of righteousness, our acts of righteousness are like filthy rags. When we, as unbelievers try to do good deeds and then expect to look up to heaven and say, what do you think, God? God looks down and goes, that stinks. That's, that's literally what this is saying. It stinks. It's, it's odious to him. Why is that? It's because we're sinners. How can a sinner hope to do some righteous thing good enough to please a perfectly sinless God? We can't. 
That's why salvation is the result of God's choice and of Christ's work. And the only thing that I bring to the table, if you will, is faith. Now, lately on TV, there seems like there's been a whole spate of spiritually oriented TV shows. And they're saying, you got to have faith and you got to hang on to your faith. And I think sometimes Christians even pick that up. And although they believe in Christ, they look at it and say, I've got to hang on to God. Because if, if I slip, I'm hanging over hell by a thread here. And that's not at all what it means to say that our faith is our part in salvation. Faith is when we come to God and make a a commitment, if you will, when we come and say, I believe. It's that moment of belief. You hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Even when we were dead, totally controlled, overrun in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For by grace, by a free gift, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Our faith is the expression of our trust, of our commitment, of our, of our understanding, of our whole person coming and saying, Jesus is the Savior, I am the sinner. We come and give our commitment to him. We don't keep our salvation by hanging on to faith. When we believe, we are transformed. To him who does not work, not even the work of hanging on, to him who does not work, but to him who believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted to him for righteousness. Those who believe are utterly saved apart from any effort on their own. The second thing that we understand that flows right out of this is that the permanence of our eternal security is in the nature of salvation. If we were to think of salvation as our hanging on to God, then it's dependent on us. But what happens is when we come and put our faith in Christ, there is a transaction that takes place and a transformation Salvation begins at the moment of salvation. I, I perhaps should have written the word happens. Salvation happens at the moment of salvation, at the moment of faith. It is not, in the eternal sense, it is not a process. The reason that we sometimes use the word begins is that what begins at faith is the Christian life. And that life of, of serving God and of conquering sin. But it's in Christ that we do that. When we put our faith in Christ, we become a Christian. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Jesus didn't say, when they come to me and believe, then someday they'll have eternal life. Sometimes we think of eternal life as the thing that starts when this life is over. I have an earthly life, and then I'll have an eternal life. And that's not the case. Eternal life starts now. 
when I put my faith in Christ, it is not only that we think of eternal life often as, as the length of life, but it's also a quality of life. It is a God quality of life. Salvation begins at the moment of faith. When I came to Christ and said, I believe, I receive Christ as my Savior, he saved me and he created in me a new life. Salvation creates a new life. You see, the Christian life is not putting lipstick on a pig. Thanks to Barb for that excellent artwork. What do I mean by that? When we come to Christ, we become a new creation. We become a sheep. We were pigs, now we're sheep. Okay? We were sinners, now we're saints. We were estranged from God, now we are together with God. We were out of control in sin, and now we are living righteously. Jesus put it this way, whoever drinks of this water, that's him, but believing in him, and, or excuse me, the, the water there he's talking about is the earthly water, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. There's a fundamental change in his existence. He says in your human existence, you drink, you drink, you drink, you drink. In fact, I think I'll drink some right now. But he said, when you come to faith in me, your spiritual thirst is over. There's a fundamental change in your life. The water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Instead of being a spiritually parched, thirsty person, you suddenly become a person who has an overflow of spiritual life. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When you come and express your faith in Christ, at that moment you become a new person. The author, uh, Arthur Pink, who quote, commented on this, he said, quite impossible is it for a sheep to become a goat, for a man who has been born again to be unborn why do I believe in eternal security? One of the reasons is because when you are created new, when you are a new creature in Christ, you can't be uncreated. Or as Pink says, you can't be unborn. Salvation begins at the moment of faith. It starts that moment you believe in Christ. Salvation creates a new life, and thirdly, salvation results in a continuing life. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. The, one of the great problems that people have had with the, the Bible doctrine of, 
of eternal security is this. They look around the church, and in six months they go, you know, there's a person who got baptized here, and they're never here, and, and I've talked to them, and they don't even believe in God anymore. And we look at that person and say, they lost their salvation. I believe what the scripture teaches me is this. If they truly were a sheep of Christ, they would continue. The fact that they have gone out from us, out back into the world, proves that they never were the sheep of Christ. This isn't talking about church membership, like, you know, they they went down the road to the XYZ Evangelical Church. No, it's not talking about that. It's talking about people leaving the body of Christ and becoming anti-Christ. He says, they went out from us because they were not of us. That's the problem. Um, uh, J. Vernon McGee, who's with the Lord now, was on the radio for many years. He said, note that this is eternal life. It is forever. If it plays out in a week or in a year or until they sin, then it's not eternal life after all. They are not really his sheep if the life does not last. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, it's important to keep in mind that Jesus was talking about sheep, true believers, not counterfeits. The dog and the pig will go back into their sin, but the sheep will follow the shepherd into green pastures. And I thought, what a picturesque quote based on this passage in Second Peter. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if after that they are then again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. I'm sorry that's kind of crude on a Sunday morning. But you know what he's saying? He's saying, look, the dog and the pig return. They never change. But Jesus says, I have sheep. And when they become sheep, they don't go back. Now, I'm not suggesting today that every Christian who has ever fallen into sin was not a true Christian, I know it's possible for a Christian to sin. I know it's possible to, to, to even struggle with that for some time. I know it's possible for, for us to have, as we like to call it, an Achilles heel, a, a, a sin that we struggle with and struggle with. I, I have, uh, we have some good friends uh, um, who... The husband, when, when they got saved, um, you know, they were in their 20s when they got saved, and he struggled for probably 20 years with drinking. But he, he, he kept fighting the battle, and God delivered him, and he's a deacon in his church, and he, he started his own ministry. I mean, God can deliver, and I understand their struggles. And I don't mean to say today by any means that a guy who struggles with something is not a believer. But the question is, Are you struggling as a believer or are you basically just walking in sin saying, oh yes, I said those words once? Because Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. At the very least, a person who is struggling in sin has a conscience of the sin because the Holy Spirit is there going, that's wrong, 
that's wrong, that's wrong. And they know they should be changing. And that's an evidence to me that a person is a sheep, but they're struggling with something. But the question, the greater question that we ask today is, do you have that conscience of sin? Or, you know, maybe one time you said the words, but it really wasn't real, and so you're just an unbeliever. But for those of us who have come to faith in Christ, we are eternally secure Again, J. Vernon McGee said this, I believe in the eternal security of the believer and in the insecurity of the make-believer. And we need to be honest enough as Christians to, and caring enough for people to not want them to go to hell happy. If we are in Christ, 1 John says we should walk in Christ. And that brings us to our third point today, which is this, the power of eternal security is in the person of God. Look at John chapter 10. This is amazing as we think about how we can be eternally secure. John 10, 28. I give them, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says, nobody's going to snatch you out of my hand. The first thing that we understand about God and our salvation here from this is Christ secures our salvation. Christ says, I am going to make sure that they make the trip. Those folks, those folks who somehow think we can lose our salvation must have a low view of Christ. Before Jesus was crucified, he had a meal with his disciples that became the apostles, and he did some teaching. And listen to what he said to Peter. You know these verses. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. What's that about? Well, if you go back and read the book of Job, Satan came up to God and he says, I've seen Job, you're blessing him, that's why he's following you. You let me have at him and he'll curse you. And God said, okay, you can... can trouble him a certain amount, and so on. And that's a parallel thing here. Apparently, Satan went to God, and he says, I know that Peter guy. You let me have at him, and, and I'll twist him up. And Jesus says, he has asked that he may sift you like wheat. He has asked to really go after you. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Do, do you get that? Do you understand that what's written in there is, I know you're going to fail. But when you come back, I have something for you to do. Does Jesus get his prayers answered? Is Jesus praying for you? Yes, he is. I do not pray. This is John 17. Jesus is praying here. He says, I do not pray to the Father. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Have you ever thought about the fact that the reason your salvation continues is that Jesus is praying for you? Man, how great is that? You think your prayer list is long. 
Again, Arthur Pink commented here saying this about the interplay between us and the devil and Christ. Tease and annoy him, the Christian, the devil man, but seize the believer he cannot. Tease and annoy the Christian, the devil man can, but seize the believer he cannot. Blessed, comforting, reassuring truth is this. Weak and helpless in ourselves, nevertheless the sheep is secure in the hand of the shepherd. That's the marvelous truth. Jesus doesn't say, you're going to be saved, you're going to be secure if you hang on. He says, no, you listen to my voice, you believe in me, and I will make sure you never perish. No one will snatch you out of my hand. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost, to the extreme, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to pray for them. That's what that word means. You know, if you stop and really think about that, you might come to a point in your life where you think, boy, Jesus is praying for me, I don't deserve that. Maybe that would motivate you to live so that Jesus could pray for you with joy. But the challenging truth is this. If you are really living for God, he's going to have to pray for you even more. Because Satan is going to want to stop you. But that's what he's doing. He's praying for you. I am not eternally secure because I am something. Because I have faith that won't go away because I just believe no matter what. I am eternally secure because Christ is my intercessor, my prayer warrior. And not only that, he's my lawyer. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have a lawyer. That's what that word means in the Greek language, an advocate, somebody who argues our case. We have a lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When Satan comes and does his work, and one of his names is the accuser of the brethren. That's one of Satan. If Jesus is constantly praying for us, it's because Satan is constantly accusing us. He's up in heaven. He goes, look at Dave Lunsford. Look at that. Look at that, what he did right there. He's trying to get traction with God. He's trying to say, God, cast him out. Throw him aside. And what happens when he talks that way? When he talks that way, Jesus steps up and he says, may I approach the bench, your honor? Attorney for the defense. My blood covers him. Case closed. A guy named Carmen wrote a great song about that years ago. Wow, that's a good lawyer story. Mm. He is my prayer warrior. He is my lawyer. That's why I stay saved. Not because of me, but because of him. Christ secures our salvation. God the Father secures our salvation. Look again with me at John 10. In verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all 
and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. He says, look, my Father made a choice to save some people, and he gave them to me. Other scripture refers to us as the inheritance of Christ. He, he's given us to Christ, and, and he says, now you're in my hands, and, I, and we're all in God's hands, and no man is greater than God the Father. Your salvation is as secure as God the Father. How powerful is God the Father? From Ephesians 5, Therefore, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, I don't cease to pray for you, to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. How big is the power of God? It's big enough to raise people from the dead. And it's that power that holds you in his hands and keeps you saved. You can't jump out of God's hands. You can fail to believe, but you cannot go back once you have come to faith in Christ. The Father secures our salvation And then, I've put it this way, the triune God secures our salvation. Look with me again at verse 28 or 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. There is a a clear inference here that the Father and the Son are working in concert. And according to John 14, the Holy Spirit comes to us permanently so he is involved in our salvation our christian life the three members of the triune godhead work in concert to keep us saved and that is why our eternality is secure the premise of our eternal security is the condition of salvation we didn't win it we can't lose it god saved us The permanence of our security is in the nature of salvation. We are born again. We are new creatures in Christ. There's no going back once the born again uh, transaction has happened. The power of eternal security is in the person of God. It's not in you. It's not in me. It's in God. And the fourth thing that we need to understand, perhaps we would call this our response to eternal security. The pleasure of our eternal security is the dedicated life. The, 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 the danger that people have put forward to this doctrine is this. If I am eternally secure, then why shouldn't I live in sin? And if you tell people they're eternally secure and that they're never going to lose their salvation, they won't live for the Lord. They don't need to. I find just the opposite to be true from the Scripture. 
The pleasure of our eternal security is the dedicated life. A correct understanding of eternal security breeds gratefulness, first of all. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. That's a fancy way that God, fancy way to say that God made us savable. He did something in us and he made us savable. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and he's conveyed us or brought us into the kingdom of the Son of Love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. A correct understanding breeds gratefulness, giving thanks. If you really understand that you were on your way to hell and God reached down and said, no, I'm going to pull you back, I'm going to save your soul, and he caused you to understand the truth, and he caused you to be brought to a place where you would be taught the truth, and you understood it and you, you believed, if that really happened in you, and if you've read the Bible at all, you'll look up to heaven and say, thank God I'm saved. If you're walking around God's church, this world, saying, gee, I don't know what this big deal about worship is. They spend all this time in worship. What a waste. I had a fellow tell me one time, you should preach for an hour and don't do anything else in church. That's not flattery to me. That's a heartbreak. Because that guy doesn't want to come here and say, thank you, God. Man, we need to be praising God for our salvation. If you really grasp what God has done, the very first thing that will come is gratefulness. Wow. A truly born-again person sees all that God did and can't help but fall down in front of him and say, Thank you. Worship through song and prayer ought to be a highly valued activity, whether it's here or out. When you're driving down the street, there ought to be a song on your lips. There ought to be some joy in your heart. Man, I've been saved. I had a fellow in my church in Tuckwilla named Dick. And Dick had a job driving around, picking up stuff from a doctor's office and taking it to the lab. And so he was going from place to place all week long. And, and Dick was a happy Christian. And he says, people say to me, Dick, why are you so happy? And he said, why shouldn't I be happy? I'm going to heaven. They couldn't grasp a person living in joy. Christian, if you can really get your heart around this, it'll change your heart. It should change your heart. A correct understanding breeds gratefulness. Number two, a correct understanding of eternal security breeds obedience. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. If you are a child of God, you're going to want to follow God. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. It's just what sheep do. They follow the shepherd. Jesus is our eternal shepherd. If you're a sheep of Christ, there should be a joy to follow him. I, I'll probably embarrass them, but I'll say it anyway. You know, the newest Christians that I know of in our family are, are, are Jerry, Mary, and, and Mary. And raise your hands over there. And they, they just love to come to Bible study and learn something new about the Christian life. Why is that? 
How can a person like Marion go from a, 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 a lot of years of being an unbeliever to being a, a person who says, man, I want to study the Bible. Why is that? It's because she's a sheep. And she's following the shepherd. Now, she'll tell you, and I will too, she's not perfect. I don't know what her faults are, but she does. But she, she wants to follow. And, and many of you, most of you that I know of, you want to follow. Why is that? It's because you're a sheep. You know when you do wrong and you don't like it. We do not need the fear of eternal damnation to motivate us to live righteously. We have the Holy Spirit of God inside of us saying, do the right thing. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I have a number of times heard a person who claimed to be a Christian essentially say this, I intend to follow the path of sin. I mean, very. I, I, can, I have a picture in my mind of, of one fellow, he's not part of our church, never has been part of our church. He sat in front of my desk, and, and we very clearly enunciated the righteous path for his life, and he said, I don't care, I'm going this way. Man, I just want to step away when somebody says that. You know the old story about the guy, two guys playing golf, and the one guy looks up to heaven, and he says, God, give me what I deserve. And the other guy steps away. Hey, friends, if you're a Christian, there should be a sensitivity to the things of God. And if God's word is plain and the path is plain, you should be walking on it. It shouldn't be a real stretch. I'm afraid to live in sin. I don't say that lightly and I don't say that arrogantly because I know I do sin. And that's why I confess it, because I don't want God upset with me. I want to live in God's peace and God's joy. But it's because I'm a sheep. It's not because I'm something special. It's because God has worked in me. I'm afraid not to confess my sin and turn from my evil ways. Being secure, eternally secure, does not breed carelessness. Just the opposite. It breeds obedience. The third thing that it breeds is service. Listen to what Paul said. I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly someone who spoke poorly of God, that's what a blasphemer is, somebody who attacked God's people, that's what a persecutor is, and an insolent man, a proud man, an arrogant man toward God. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The Apostle Paul says, man, I am so glad for what God did in my life and it's my privilege to be in the ministry and to serve God. Again, do you appreciate what God's done in your life? If you do, you should be looking around it and what should just naturally come out is, I need to help some other people. Hey, some people here, you know, like the song says, they're walking on the pointless path. I need to help them get to the truth. Here's some Christians that are struggling. I can help them because I've been through some of those struggles. And, and, and service should just well up within you. 
When God talks about the the service of giving, he says God loves a cheerful heart. Where does the cheerful part come from? Is it cheerful because, boy, there goes that money out of my wallet. I sure am happy about that. No. It's cheerful because, man, there goes my money to Africa. There goes my money to the youth ministry, and there goes my money to Sunday school curriculum, and, and there goes to the heat and the lights. Praise God, I'm participating in the ministry. And somehow that mentality, whether, <clears throat> whether it's giving or teaching Sunday school or whatever it is, we have to say, wow, I get to say thank you to God by serving other people. We sang a song this morning, the first song we sang, Standing on the Promises. And there's a phrase in there that says, resting in my Savior as my all in all. Resting in my Savior as my all in all. Um, I'd just like to challenge you as we close today with this thought. God intends for us to rest in him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. He's not talking about working down at the coal mine there. He's talking about spiritual labor, that labor where you're trying to fulfill your life. You're trying to find a path for life. You're trying to know about eternity, uh, about the time when, when this life will end. And, and, it, and it's, it's labor-intensive. Well, you know, last night we're watching some news program and they're, they're featuring the, the, the implosion of the life of a celebrity. You know, it's a regular feature on the news. Why does that happen? Were it not for grace, I'd tell you where I'd be. Right there. But God says, you can rest from that heavy load. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Is your soul at rest today? Boy, it's a great thing to be resting in my Savior as my all in all. God intends for us to rest. I hope that's true of you today. If you're not a Christian, it would be our privilege to help you come to rest in Christ. And if you're a Christian who's not at rest, it would be our privilege to help you get there if you're struggling with something.